Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition podcast, sponsored by the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. I'm Brian O'Connor, Adjunct Professor of Entrepreneurship at Chicago Booth, and joining me today, we have Alex Schneider, founding partner of Clover Capital Partners, as well as Adjunct Professor of Entrepreneurship at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management. Thanks for joining, Alex. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Great. So if we could maybe start just uh, with a little bit of your background, um, I think the viewers and listeners would enjoy hearing about your unique path toward ETA and sort of what you're up to currently at, at, at uh, Clover Capital Partners. Uh, sure. Uh, again, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, my uh, you know, entrepreneurship background actually started as an undergrad at Northwestern. Um, a little uh, sort of... Um, by happenstance, uh, I, w I played soccer at Northwestern, and there were a couple guys who uh, started a company basically moving boxes uh, for students. Uh, actually, one of them was Seth Myers, who's now hosting The Tonight Show. Um, and uh, we, um, I got to school on campus early because of soccer practice, uh, and you know, just they were looking for kids who could move boxes for them, and so uh, just started helping them out. They graduated later that year and had a little bit of a business and um, offered uh, me and a couple of the other guys on the soccer team the opportunity to buy the business, uh, which we did for uh, basically 50% of next year's uh, profits. Uh, and that business grew uh, over the next couple years to, I mean, something modest, $250,000, $300,000 of revenue, but it was a great experience. We ended up um, taking the shipping and storage business and uh, adding a, uh, a publishing arm. We ended up buying a yellow page directory business. Um, in, in, a, in a way, it became a little private equity firm. We took the money that we made from each business line and we bought little uh, uh, businesses along the way, evaluating refrigerator rental, uh, uh, rug businesses, all sorts of different things, eventually selling the different pieces when we graduated. Wow. Um, so took that entrepreneurial experience, which was I mean, I kind of think about my education at Northwestern um, and uh, going very conventional, working for uh, J.P. Morgan in New York, uh, and then uh, with the idea that I always wanted to go back to owning and operating a business. Uh, so joined uh, a couple private equity firms, uh, one in Minneapolis and then one here in Chicago called Keystone Capital. Um, and, and Keystone was a little bit different. Um, really investing the private capital of its founders. So unlike a traditional fund, very focused on long-term value creation, uh, very involved in uh, the operational aspects of it, which was very um, inspiring to me. And um, the model's incredibly successful and uh, something that you know, I've always sort of aspired to, to build again. Um, had the opportunity um, in 2010 upon a very successful exit in one of the businesses that I worked on to um, buy a business that sort of came to me while I was at Keystone, but it was too small for, for the partners there. Uh, private equity firms that are successful have this high class problem of you know, wanting to move up market when you, when you have a couple good exits. So it creates opportunities for younger analysts, associates, or VPs um, to sort of uh, identify a really good business that might be too small uh, for, for an institutional fund um, and to kind of run with it. And that was really the genesis of Clover. Um, 
tell us a little bit about that business and, and what uh, made you compelled to want, choose that as your first deal outside of uh, Keystone. So uh, again, I mean, unlike a lot of entrepreneurs today, I wasn't as strategic about wanting to start my own uh, firm. But um, the, the company that we had exited at Keystone was a wholesale bakery. Um, it, uh, we grew it from about 20 million of revenue to 120 million of revenue and exited it in 2010. So um, not only did that sort of create this opportunity for the firm to move up market, um, I had a, uh, some, some means to uh, uh, sort of go after a business on my own, um, but also I had some industry credibility. Um, it was a pretty well-known um, exit in the marketplace. I had been involved in that industry for eight years at that point, had done three acquisitions, um, so I could walk the walk. I could, I knew enough to be dangerous. And so um, when that opportunity called Main Street Gourmet uh, came to us at Clover, um, even though I was approaching it from a brand new firm at the time without even a website, without, I had a, I had a business partner, uh, David Cho, who I'd worked with at JP Morgan, who was looking for a business to buy as well. Um, you know, it was a little bit fake it till you make it. Um, we, luckily, I, I knew the intermediaries representing the company. Um, we were invited in for a meeting, and uh, serendipitously, they weren't necessarily looking for the highest price. They were um, co-founders of a business looking to diversify their personal net worth. They wanted partners who knew the industry to help them grow. Uh, they had actually sold to a, a traditional fund. Um, and it was actually a bad experience. They bought it back. So in a lot of ways, the stars sort of aligned for us on this deal. It was an industry I knew. It was, um, you know, the, the, the pricing was, the valuation was reasonable. They were open to lots of structure. Um, and it was a um, sellers who were open to uh, the, the independent sponsor model. Um, so... Yeah, that was in 2010, and, and uh, it's been a great partnership since. How important has it been for you and Clover Capital to focus and stay true to that space that you did sort of fake it until you made it and, and in, in the food and food services space? I mean, how important has that been in attracting new investors to your strategy and, tar and, and drumming up uh, deal flow and targets? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because we did not necessarily set out to be an industry-focused firm. Um, it's been more sort of an evolution of our, uh, of our model as we've interacted more with business owners and more with, with investors. So it, um, we started off pretty generalist. It just happened to be that our first deal was uh, in the food and beverage space. Um, and so our investor base uh, initially uh, is a, is a um, there's, there's 10 investors, each of them have a, a small piece. We have a pretty decent amount of money into the, the business, but it wasn't food focused. Um, and we didn't market ourselves as a food focused firm when we raised capital. Um, but as we were out there, um, you know, trying to source another deal, and that's the, one of the benefits that some people uh, would, would, uh, would agree with is that you don't have to have all your eggs in one basket. We have the flexibility to do more than one deal at a time. Um, we were going to food trade shows, um, partially because we were representing our business and we wanted to meet the customers and the, the suppliers. Um, these were trade shows that I'd been going to for, for a while as well. Um, and, and you start to network within um, 
you know, you've got an anchor business and you're using that business to sort of network within uh, the, the consultants, with the executives, with the, the buyers and the, the, the commodity dealers. Um, and that, that really helps you generate proprietary deal flow. Um, so, so the second business that we bought, which is a, um, it's a chocolate confection business in Los Angeles, we met that owner at a trade show that we were attending with our first business. And I still remember um, uh, Louise uh, King, it was a husband-wife, uh, she was very skeptical about these two young guys coming into this business that has been around since 1946. This is Joe's Candies, it's our 70th anniversary. Um, and she was describing um, her relationship with one, one particular coffee chain um, that I, I'm familiar with from my other experience. And um, you know, the minute she knew that I knew who she was talking about and the problem that they were having, it, there was sort of a light that switched on for her. So, so we got instant credibility with her that, that unless you were in that industry, it would be very difficult for you to establish that, that level of, of um, rapport with someone across the table. And in that situation, there was no intermediary. That was a directly negotiated transaction between us and, and the husband-wife. Um, so in that instance, it also helped us uh, with evaluating risk. So um, their business had a significant customer concentration with a, a certain coffee chain. Um, and we knew some people there and we were able to, to get comfortable with that risk by, by doing kind of added diligence. Um, theoretically, the industry um, thesis should also help with value creation. And uh, we have a very um, sort of uh, a strong point of view as to how we can create value with that business. On the flip side, on the investor base, as we've evolved into becoming more um, food and beverage focused, um, we've been able to uh, diversify our investor base away from what was just traditionally um, a lot of finance people, sophisticated investors who understand uh, leverage buyouts, um, the independent sponsor model, um, and now we've supplemented it with food people. These are individuals and families who own or have owned food businesses. Um, they're very interested in what we're doing. Um, they want to be involved, uh, but you know, it, this is a way for them to invest in smaller businesses that aren't like theirs but have a lot of the same issues, but it's not a full, you know, it's not a passive fund investment for them. So, uh, and for us, it's a great two-way street because um, if we see something in the dairy space, I have got three or four investors of ours who more passively invest in snack food or chocolate or bakery, but then when we look at dairy, I know who to call. Someone who might be uh, contemplating the ETA path that doesn't have the benefit of being as deep and as knowledgeable in the food space as, you know, for example, as, as, as you and Clover are, um, how would you uh, sort of guide them or give them advice toward creating that street credit, as you've described it, that ultimately will result in good deal flow um, and you know, building rapport with a business owner that might be a little bit skeptical of their background and their level of experience and expertise. What sort of uh, advice might you give someone pursuing a 
search fund path or an unfunded search um, that that you know they can try to replicate some of the things that you did at, that you've done and continue to do at Clover. Well, I think the benefit of you know beginning that pathway in ETA early in your career is you have time and you can invest in your own development uh, within an industry. Um, you know, chances are you've you've come from some background where you've experienced um, uh, the ins and outs of at least one industry, and, and, and more than likely if you've come from a generalist background, consulting, banking, um, even general management, you've experienced um, some industries. And, and you, know, you know, part of it's find your passion. I mean, what do you like? I mean, I was very fortunate, again, that I actually really enjoy investing in the food space. Um, you know, it's, it's fun, it's tangible to me, um, I'm passionate about it. Um, so it was sort of, uh, you know, nice to kind of, you know, morph my way into that, that industry. But, um, you know, if it wasn't food, I mean, I also have some experience in, in um, uh, you know, value-added services or industrial technology. And, you know, if, if I had just invested the time in those, gone to those trade shows, networked with those people, used, you know, uh, uh, you know my Kellogg uh, MBA to network within that, that environment to sort of just have have coffee with with uh, uh, river guides or, or gurus or you know I, I call them basically the equivalents of of grandfathers in the investing space you know people who have money and have experience who still want to be helpful still have a lot of knowledge but they don't want to change any more diapers they just want to um, you know they want to uh, encourage younger uh, tenacious sort of entrepreneurs kind of down a path. So, you know, whether it's food or whether it's, you know, um, you know any other specific niche, I, I, think the, the, I think it's important to have some focus um, just because the markets are so efficient today. Uh, it's hard to establish credibility with a seller within, you know, five minutes of meeting them, whether it's a, a call or whether it's meeting them at a trade show or an introduction. Um, they, they, business owners get inundated today with, um, you know, search funder interns, you know, business brokers just kind of calling them. You need a hook. And if you can get to three or four really relevant points with them quickly, uh, you know, more often than not, maybe you'll get a second meeting. So find your niche, uh, get up to speed in that particular niche so, such that you're, you know enough to be dangerous, meet the right people, and, and have a focus. And maybe it's uh, two to three industries or four industries as you're searching, um, but it's very important, if I'm hearing you correctly, to uh, understand where you can add value, have enough uh, experience and understanding of that industry to gain the credibility that's necessary to find a target. I, I think so. I, I think part of it, um, I mean, everybody says you got to develop proprietary deal flow. You got to be proactive. I think you got to do both. I mean, in this market, you got to be proactive with a thesis, but then you also need to be in a position where you can be reactive when something comes your way. So, um, by focusing on specific themes, um, you're not only generating, um, you know, hopefully that proprietary deal flow, which oftentimes means planting seeds that may or may not get to be able to be harvested at some point. But as you're doing that, you're gaining intelligence that allows you to react to, oh, you know, uh, one of my in, like search fund investors, you know, saw a deal kind of in this space, he passed it on to me. It's, a, it's an investment banker-led process, but I know that space. I can, I can legitimately walk into that meeting and feel confident that 
um, you know, I'm, I'm the right buyer. And, you know, there are a lot of auctions now. And auctions, um, you shouldn't, if, if you have a specific expertise, if you have a value creation plan in an, in an industry, you shouldn't feel afraid to win an auction process. Um, sometimes that's just the reality of the world today is that, I mean, just like the, the, the ETA market, you know, people are coming down market to buy businesses. People are going down market to represent sellers also. And so a business that is two million of, of, of EBITDA, uh, you know, five years ago, six years ago, may not have been represented. Um, it might be today. And you need to feel comfortable that, you know, it's not going to be adverse selection. You're going to be able to prevail from that process at the end of the day. Well, while winning an auction uh, can occasionally represent winner's curse, you're saying that if you have a unique angle and you have an experience and expertise in that space and a value creation strategy that maybe some of the other suitors for that business don't have, uh, it may not necessarily re represent winner's curse. That's right, that's right. You need to, you know, some point of differentiation. More often than not, if you're just approaching an industry you don't know, and you and it, then it is a winner's curse because there 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 can be adverse selection. There can be smart people in a process who are backing away. But you know, like the example I gave you with our candy business, um, you know, we've owned that business for four years. They had sixty percent customer concentration with one customer. Um, we you know we prevailed not in a process, but we became comfortable with that because of our industry knowledge. Um, and and that customer has been great for us so far. So um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the, specifically about the independent sponsor approach versus some of the other paths that we might think about in an ETA sort of discussion and setting. So um, you know, for, for the folks that might be contemplating a search fund, um, how have you seen some drawbacks and benefits to not necessarily being um, beholden to a captive audience of investors during the search process, mm -hmm. um, and maybe some of the drawbacks associated with uh, similarly not having that same captive audience come deal time? Yeah, I think, I mean, you can, you can break that down the comparison of kind of an independent sponsor to a, to a search fund approach in a lot of different ways. The most obvious is that, um, you know, an independent sponsor has no uh, means to fund the search. Um, so either you need to uh, be comfortable with that, be funding it on your own, uh, or, um, you know, you need to, um, you know, be very efficient or very focused in, in doing so. Uh, versus obviously on the search side, um, you've got a, um, a framework for, for going out and investing, investigating um, opportunities. Um, and, and that's important. Uh, you shouldn't be in a search process. You shouldn't be penny wise and pound foolish. If, if it's a matter of going out, you know, uh, you, know you, you, you get a hook and an entrepreneur is like, why don't you come out and visit me next week? Um, you know, it's good to have, you know, some money to say, all right, it's within two weeks. It's not a Saturday stay. This is going to be a $1,500 airplane ticket. But you know what? That's your window. Like, he may be testing you. You may need to be able to do that. If it's out of your own pocket, you know, you might, you might look at that a little bit differently. Which, you know, it's, it's, it's tough sometimes. <laughs> Having just, you know, taken a flyer on a business in Hawaii two weeks ago, which, we, which kind of died. But, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so the, the, the search process and the funding of the search process is, is a little bit different. Obviously on the search side, because you've already um, generated some investors, you do have a pretty stable 
um, sort of group of advisors and mentors that you can go to uh, for advice. And hopefully you've been thoughtful um, in your fundraising process to uh, develop um, you know, people who can represent different aspects of it. You know, maybe there's someone who really understands law or, or the search process. Um, on the, the, the independent sponsor model, um, you know, hopefully you, you should be doing that also. You should be teeing up people who are going to be interested in what you're doing. But those people don't commit. And that's the beauty of it for those investors is that more than likely they're a sophisticated investor who is interested either in your investment thesis, interested in you as a person, maybe a mentor of yours along the way. Um, but at the end of the day, they like the fact that it's not a blind pool. They can see not only you as an operator or, or as a sponsor, but then also the deal before committing and making that decision. And these people are very busy. Um, so if they haven't committed to you, you know, you might not be able to get as much time with them as a mentor and advisor. So it's important if you're going down the independent sponsor path to, you know, either have the experience, have the ducks in a row, or really be able to um, anchor yourself on a couple of really good investors who, at the end of the day, will also help you fund your transaction. You, you don't want to go, you don't want to find a great business and have not talked to people um, about funding what you're doing already. Now, they don't have to commit to it, but you should have had those conversations already. So, such that they're comfortable with you as the sponsor of that deal, as well as the industry that it's playing in. The, you don't want to have the first conversation be <laughs> one, of, one of around sort of commitment. Level. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Like, you know, hi, I'm Alex. Nice to meet you. Uh, you know, um, I'm raising money for this. What do you think? Yeah, no. No, you need to... Um, in a lot of ways, it's like the search fund model where you're having a lot of those conversations and it's just that they're not committing and they're not paying for your search process. But, but for the most part, they know your background, they know you, they've done some diligence on you. Um, you know, you've told them kind of what you're looking for and, um, and you establish credibility with them when you find something that fits kind of within that box. Hey, remember a month ago we had coffee at at Starbucks, I kind of told you that I was looking for something in the you know, value-added protein space. Well, you know, we've been looking for six months. Uh, I came across this uh, through our network. You know, here's why we're interested. You know, we're going to go through a diligence process. You know, would you like to be part of this with us? You've, you've established a high degree of credibility. Um, people get the sense that you have a purpose for what you're looking for um, when you lay the groundwork like that. Yeah. Compare um, your approach at Clover, the independent sponsor model, with that of a committed pool of capital. And you, we talked a little bit about um, your uh, ability and willingness to participate in a uh, process or an auction. Um, how has the intermediary community, and even business owners for that matter, responded to the fact that you don't necessarily have a committed pool of capital? Now, you might have a series of investors that you've worked with time and time again um, that you could reasonably assume that if you find a good target, they'll be participants in that acquisition. Mm -hmm. But how, has, how is that conversation different than it might be with a uh, committed pool of capital behind you? Uh, well, obviously, the committed pool of capital, you know, that it's, it's a non, it's a non issue when, when, when the typical question comes up. I mean, when, you know, when I'm putting forth a, a letter of intent, obviously, there's certain buckets that a, a seller is looking at, um, you know, obviously, price and structure usually being kind of at the top. Sometimes it's, 
management. Um, you know, sometimes it's what you're going to do with employees. It's it's sort of intent. But then there's the the sort of the the speed and certainty of close sort of bucket of a of a of a proposal, and I think it's evolved. I, I think um, more recently the whole notion of an independent sponsor, while five ten years ago that was a that was a big deal. I think there were a lot of un like deals that blew up because of a lack of funding. I think that's less of the case today. I think the independent model is much more accepted um, by intermediaries. It's much more accepted by sellers. Um, you know, I think it's it's less a function of um, you know are you funded or or not funded, and you know can you do a deal? Like, ha, ha, do you have the experience? Do you have the wherewithal? Do you know what you're talking about? Um, so you do things earlier in a process by um, you know, when we submit a letter of intent, I've got, I've got funding, you know, not, not commitment letters from banks, but I've got banks that I've worked with before who give us support letter, and that's part of our package in a letter of intent. So, okay, here's the private bank or, or, or First Merit or, you know, real institutions who say, yeah, we would support these guys. And that really gives you know an intermediary or a business owner comfort that okay you know they've done their diligence on them, you know as the process unfolds I will do my diligence on them as well and and they'll they'll become a credible a credible buyer down the path. Um, it's you know a, a little bit is is spin. I mean you gotta you gotta sell it and um, you know I think the beauty today is that there are um, you know a number of private equity firms or, or single family offices that, you know, if, if you have a deal and, and, and you've gotten to kind of at least talked with them, they'll write you a letter or they'll, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll represent that, yeah, if, if diligence checks out and, and if there's a deal there, yeah, I would back them. And again, it's a little bit of fake it till you make it. Um, you gotta uh, at least get your foot in the door and an intermediate or a seller will be looking at you through milestones. You know, are you kind of, you know, are you continuing with your diligence? Are you, you know, going down the path on the financing side? And um, if you can continue to do that, I'd argue, and, and I do argue sometimes, that speed and certainty of close is higher for us sometimes than for a fund. Um, I don't have, I mean, if I'm at a fund and I have one member of my investment committee who, because his neighbor, lost money in a deal like that four years ago, said, no, I'm going to veto that. We're done. Um, and I've had friends that that's happened to. They do all, they, they're, a, they're a principal at a private equity fund. They do all this work developing a deal, and someone on an investment committee sort of puts the kibosh on it. Versus me, um, actually, it kind of happened. On our, on our first deal, one of our investors, or one of our largest investors, um, basically wasn't comfortable with a deal term at the 11th hour. And I was able to say, you know, no, you're out. Um, it, you know, you need to reevaluate that. Um, otherwise, I have other people who can come in here, or I'll step up more, and we'll still fund the deal. I'm not going to get held up by, by one particular person, one particular investor who, you know, didn't read the operating agreement until the day before close. So, um, you know, if you will always, I, I, I always kind of tell in intermediaries, like with an independent sponsor, as long as you're dealing with someone who kind of knows what they're doing, they'll always raise the money because at the end of the day, I can always play around with my economics. You know, I can always take a, 
I can always take less carry. I can always take less management fee. I can always find someone who will take a piece of that in order to get the deal funded. So in a lot of ways, there's so much more flexibility um, with regard to our model than with a fund. So um, that's actually a good transition into the last thing that I'd like to touch on, which is the independent sponsor model as it relates to entrepreneurship through acquisition. So um, every deal, every situation is unique. Um, how does the independent sponsor model allow you the flexibility to become as involved or not involved in the day-to-day -day operations of that business and, and how specifically do you think about that um, within, within the construct of Clover Capital? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question and I mean, I can, you know, to kind of transition on the theme of flexibility, um, you know, I, I think approaching a, um, a, a deal uh, through a search fund model, um, you know, your intent is to operate. And, and that's great. I mean, that's, that, that is a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a phenomenal endeavor and one that, um, you know, I think is a, is an experience that is, is really unique. Um, the, the independent sponsor model doesn't necessarily uh, assume that the sponsor is going to run that business. In fact, probably the history of the independent sponsor model, um, is that it's less about day-to-day -day management and more about I want to raise a fund at some point, you know, this is my means of doing it. Um, I think that's evolved. I think, um, you know, our intent at Clover, for example, is um, a bit of a hybrid. It's that uh, we want to be more involved with fewer businesses. When I left my last firm, I was on six different boards and, you know, trying to find like add-on acquisitions and, and just spread way too thin. Um, you know, today, uh, you know, we, we own control of two businesses and, and we have a couple minority investments, but I can spend a lot more time on the value creation side uh, with, with each of those businesses. So, so of the two, one of them, um, I think I mentioned, co-founders still run that business. We're helping with the management transition, elevating um, a next set of, of management uh, there. But I'm actively involved. Um, I'm there, uh, you know, once a month. Um, we're in the middle of a plant expansion. Uh, we're going through some some uh, some turnover at the top. Uh, we're looking at acquisitions. Um, it's a very strategic um, role, and uh, I'm pretty well versed in almost every aspect of that business. Um, the other business, uh, uh, the, the the confection business, that was a retirement situation. Um, we've struggled to find the right leader for that business, and uh, I played an active day-to-day -day CEO role for a, for a short transition period, but my partner uh, is currently running that business on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and and the, 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 the independent sponsor model gives us that flexibility. If, if we had a fund, we would be beholden to our LPs. Our LPs would expect us to be deploying capital that, that they had committed to us, and we couldn't sort of say, you know what? We're not going to focus on a new acquisition right now. Um, we couldn't say, you know what, we're going to we're going to put more of our resources into this business um, and really focus on making sure that it gets off the ground um, better. And um, you know that 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 could never happen at a at a fund. Um, so you know we like that that sort of flexibility. Um, you know I think there uh, you know people who are interested in the independent sponsor model again tend to lean towards. The financial sort of um, structuring board level management than than day to day management, um, but 
I think, I think because you know, in an independent sponsor model, you're not going to have a big portfolio. You're inherently going to be more involved in those businesses, and um, you're going to feel um, that responsibility that um, you get as an entrepreneur in a search fund with your baby. I mean, you know, these the two businesses that we own. I mean, we are ultimately responsible for them. Uh, unlike at a fund. You know, if we had a small fund where we had six businesses in there, um, if one's not going well, you know what? Okay, but we've got three others that are doing really well. It, it's a little more, the efficacy of your experience is, is um, diluted, you know, through a fund structure. Alex, you've been very generous with your time. Any final parting words of wisdom for a young entrepreneur that might be a student of yours or a student of mine <laughs> or any viewers and listeners um, that, that you'd like to leave us with as they evaluate independent sponsor, uh, a self-funded search, a search fund, maybe partnering with a private equity fund to conduct a search? Um, we'd love to hear sort of some, some last final uh, words of advice. I, I think, I mean, it's a, it's a great way to kind of segue because it's kind of a renaissance for ETA. I mean, you know, the, the whole term ETA, you know, never really existed, uh, you know, five or six years ago. I mean, you know, there were, there were search funds, there were independent sponsors, but, um, you know, for, for a young aspiring entrepreneur, there are, there are so many different options um, today to pursue, whether it's, uh, you know, a traditional search fund, whether it's, the independent sponsor model, whether it's a sponsored search, um, uh, you know, uh, th there's um, you know different ways of in uh, different sort of models for for your own skill sets. So for someone who definitely wants to run a business, um, you know, the, the, there's nothing better than I think that traditional search model or, or the sponsored search model. Um, the, the independent sponsor model sort of provides for a little bit of more of that hybrid. So, um, you know, if, if, it's a, if it's a student at Booth or, or one of my students at Kellogg, you know, that's a great opportunity to use the resources, you know, Polsky or, or uh, the Levy Institute at Kellogg to, um, you know, investigate some of these different pathways. And both your institution, my institution have some phenomenal alumni. And, and usually in this ETA space, everybody is so, um, so flexible with their time and generous with their with their time. So I, I'd I'd encourage anybody to sort of, you know, use the resources that are available at their fingertips on the internet. Leverage the network that they have. You know, take your class, take my class. Um, you might actually see each other at each other's classes sometimes, <laughs> um, and uh, and go and go for it. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's a great experience. Thank you, Alex, managing partner, Alex Schneider, ma managing partner and founding partner of Clover Capital Partners. Thank you to our viewers and listeners. This has been an installment of the Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition podcast, sponsored by the Polsky Center of Entrepreneurship at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business.